Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Would you please pray with me? Father, this morning we need your help. There are so many times when everything that we do here, these songs we sing, these prayers we pray, can seem like foolishness to those outside of this place, but also to those within this place. So we ask now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come, reveal to us that what seems as foolishness is in fact the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus, and as we open these pages of scripture, may we see him crucified, risen, and soon to come again, and in seeing him, may we be transformed to become like him, for we ask in his name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Patrick Schlabs. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm very happy to be up here with you this morning. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, uh, in contrast to now, I did not have much experience with wine or really any alcohol to, to make note of. I didn't drink in high school, didn't drink in college, didn't drink in my early 20s until I went on a cruise with my family. And every night, if you've been on a cruise before, it's, it's, you know, it's a little cheesy, but it's a little bit fun. You know, every, every night you get dressed up, and you sit with some strangers, and you share this meal. And every night that we were on this cruise, we ordered exactly one bottle of wine for about seven of us. So we were clearly not heavy drinkers at that point. And at first, you know, when you order wine, if you're not used to wine culture or alcohol culture at all, you, you don't know what to do, right? So they come over, they bring you the bottle, and I, you have no idea what they're, you know, I, I still really don't know what, what anything means just except for what the label looks like, right? But, you know, really, you just don't know the difference between any of the wines or, you know, dark uh, or red or white, any of that stuff. And so the first several days, they were just, you know, didn't know. But, but after a few days, I feel like I was starting to get the hang of things, you know, starting to kind of figure this thing out. And... It culminated where the last afternoon I was in my room and happened to see this movie called Sideways, which if you don't know and aren't familiar with it, it's a movie about wine culture. It happens in Northern California, and it's just people drinking wine throughout the whole movie. And so I thought, going into that last night, okay, I've got this. I've got this figured out. I'm really getting the hang of this. And so um, I decided I'm going to be the one to order the bottle. So the sommelier comes, and he, he brings it to me, and you know, I kind of nod approvingly. That's exactly, it looks perfect. And, you know, he pours, pours a little bit in my glass, and I swirl it around, you know, let it breathe, um, sniff it, you know, just kind of take note of all the flavors that I'm, I'm, I'm smelling. And then I tilt my head back, and I pour it in, and all of a sudden I go, <laughs> and just absolutely spewed red droplets with like a two, within two feet of this white tablecloth. And, of course, the Somalia was horrified. I had inhaled the wine rather than drank it, went down the wrong pipe, and just spit it all over the table. And, if I, of course, if, if I'd have been with it, I could have saved it, right? I could, have, I could have said, this is horrible wine. You know, send it back. I've never tasted anything worse. But, of course, I didn't. I wanted to just disappear. I'd wanted to seem so cool and hip and sophisticated, and I just came away looking like a fool. Everyone in the entire section had heard and seen what had happened. 
And it seems to me that we will do, all of us, just about anything that we can to not look foolish. We'll hide parts of who we are so we don't look silly. We'll change parts about ourselves even to not look foolish. We all, I think, want to be seen as sophisticated, competent, cool kids, as it were. And yet when we think about what we're doing in here this morning, gathering around, singing songs, teaching from an ancient book, it all seems a little bit foolish, right? We're in a moment where our faith feels fragile. What we do here on Sunday mornings, this ancient faith that we cling to, feels a bit foolish. And if you ask certain people, at best, those who practice Christianity are backwards and useless. And at worst, if you talk to others, we're bigoted, and in fact, the faith is viewed as harmful to people. And more than that, it's not just Christians, right? It's all of us. Every one of us are constantly encountering people who believe things that are very different from us. We have these, uh, uh, this uh, philosopher Charles Taylor uh, calls them cross pressures, that every day we encounter people whose belief systems are radically different from, from us, and that leads us all to kind of hold them with fragility. You know, we're just, we're just much less certain than we were at one point. And so it becomes easy for us in this moment to downplay aspects of our faith, right? And more than that, to adopt things of the culture around us, the beliefs, the practices of the cultures around us. It's becoming increasingly difficult to live Christianly when the culture is not. This, of course, is uh, the ancient threat of the church, syncretism, incorporating outside ideas and practices into the life of the church. When the world gets into the church, it's a threat now, but it's certainly not new. And so for that reason, I'm very excited that we are starting a teaching series over the summer out of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think you'll find as we explore this morning, but more as we look at the book in the coming weeks, that you'll see how similar this threat played out in the lives of the Corinthian church. We'll find that there are some of the, some of the similar challenges that they faced, we face today. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the, the church and how similar the context is. Uh, 1 Corinthians is, is the second of four letters that were written by St. Paul. And this was a church that, of course, he planted in one of his missionary journeys. The city of Corinth, interestingly, was destroyed by the Romans about a century before Paul came there. And then it was rebuilt and resettled by Julius Caesar. And it was resettled with uh, veterans, people who had fought in wars, and by other freedmen, artisans, and then a good group of slaves who helped to make the city what it was. And at the time of this writing, it's a very busy port city. Uh, Corinth set on this isthmus, and so it was a, it was a connection point between uh, north and south. Uh, Asia to the north and Italy to the south. One commentator described Corinth at this time as like San Francisco during the gold rush. It was a boom town. Everyone that wanted to get in on it was able to. There was lots of opportunities. And contrary to most Roman culture where, where social, social hierarchies were fairly stable, Corinth was a place where you could come and make a lot of money and move up the social hierarchy, move up that ladder. And the economy of Corinth uh, was all about amenities for travelers. It was a very transient place, lots of people in, lots of people out. And in fact, the city itself had a major tourism industry. Sound familiar? One commentator says that the city of Corinth was a major tourist attraction in itself. 
And visitors regarded a stay there as a participation in a joyous, continual celebration. Sort of like all the bachelorette advertisements about Charleston. It was, of course, uh, also something of a, uh, a stopping point for speaking tours. Philosophers, entertainers, athletes all came to Corinth in order to do their thing. And so it is to this prosperous, cosmopolitan, pluralistic, status-obsessed, tourist-friendly church in Corinth and also in Charleston today that Paul, I think, writes to us. When living in a pagan world, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd say, the people of Corinth are called to see everything in light of the lens of the cross. That's how they summarize the, the point of 1 Corinthians. Seeing everything in the midst of a pagan world through the lens of the cross. And so that's why we're calling this series Cross Culture Church. Because we want to be a church that is centered upon the cross. And as we do that, as we are a place centered on the cross, there are going to be places where we will need to be diagonal to our culture. And the rest of the letter lays that out. But that's the center of it, is the cross. Paul will address divisions in the church. He'll talk about marriage and sex. He'll talk about idolatry, the gifts of the spirit, love, the famous love chapter in 13, and the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he begins in chapter 1 with the foundation of the letter, which he calls the wisdom of God. And so I invite you to turn with me in your pew Bibles or in your Bibles if you brought them to 1 Corinthians 1. On the pew Bibles, it's on page 952. Foundation of this letter is the wisdom of God. And in many ways, thinking about the wisdom of God makes sense as a foundation to the Christians at this time and place. This is a mixed church we know. There are Jewish people and there are Greco-Roman people. And so for the Jews among them, Paul talking about the wisdom of God makes a lot of sense. If you know anything about the Old Testament, there's a major theme throughout the Old Testament, the wisdom of God. In fact, there's an entire book. The book of Proverbs is all about the wisdom of God. And for the Hebrew mind, for the Jewish mind, God's wisdom is the very logic of creation. It's the way that God established the world to work. And so to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because that is to to submit oneself to the ways that God's world works. And so for Paul to begin here, that's not offensive. It makes sense. It's logical. For the Greco-Roman audience that was there, wisdom is also kind of their thing. Plato, Socrates, ever heard of them? Philosophers, lovers of wisdom. And the people of Corinth, we know know loved ideas, arguments, lectures. And so Paul, starting here with the wisdom of God, makes sense to them as well. It would have spoken to them. The wisdom of God sounds amazing. It sounds sophisticated. It sounds cool, even. And yet Paul, at the beginning of this verse that we just heard read, declares that the wisdom of God is seen most clearly in the cross. He says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so writing to a church that is enamored with success, with status, with so many people trying to climb that social ladder, this is the equivalent of Paul spitting wine all over the table. 
It's surprising. It's shocking. He declares to them that God's wisdom, the logic of creation, the things that the philosophers spend their lives studying is best understood as God humiliated, tortured, executed as a prisoner of the state. And if you were starting a religion, that's a terrible story. It's just bad PR. Think about it. If you're a Jew, you've got these great heroes that have gone before you. You've got the story of Moses bringing the Egyptians to their knees and leading God's people into the promised land. You've got Samson, this mighty man killing you know, thousands of people with a donkey bone, a donkey jaw. David, the giant slayer. Solomon, the wisest man on earth. If you're a Greek, you have the pantheon. And you have all of these gods, Zeus, Athena, all of their beauty, all of their wisdom, all of their wily ways. You've got Caesar, who has conquered, who has brought peace to the earth through might. And yet in contrast to that, the Christians say our God is one who dies on the cross. One ancient writer uh, said that the cross is so horrifying that, that ancient people wouldn't even talk about it. It was obscene even to bring up because it was such a terrible device of torture and shame and humiliation. Christianity, historian Bruce Shelley remarks, is the only major religion to have at its central event the humiliation of its God. And yet that's Paul's claim, that this is in fact the wisdom of God is seen in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And everything else that he will argue in this letter, all of the ethics, all of the commands about worship, all of the commands about spiritual gifts, all of that is built upon this foundation that the wisdom of God is seen in this instrument of torture. And Paul says, where is the wise one? Where is the religious learner, the scribe? Where is the debater or the orator or the rhetorician? He says that it pleased God in verse 21 through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul is saying that the cross is the paradigm that has altered all of human history. And if this instrument of torture and shame has meant that God redeems humanity and overthrows the power of death and hell and begins to heal all of the cosmos, then everything we thought we knew must be questioned. Everything we thought we knew might, in fact, be wrong. It might be opposite of what we thought. And of course, this was offensive then, and it's offensive now. Thinking about the wisdom of God being displayed on the cross is scandal, a scandal. That's the, the word that he uses for stumbling block. It's a, it's a scandal. And it, it, Paul says it confronts Jews and Greeks in very particular ways that I think play out probably in our lives today. Paul says Jews seek signs. They're after a God, not one who dies on a cross, but they're after one who will give them what they ask for, who will display his might on behalf of their nation. And I think this idea is pretty alive and well today. This is God as a genie. This is God as the one who gives me what I ask for. This is the, the prayer that you pray whenever you just really need help this one last time, and you're like, if God, if you'll just deliver on this, then I'll trust you forever. Not that those are all bad. 
But this is that, we have references a lot. This is that subtle prosperity gospel that, that all of us kind of believe deep down as Americans, that if we do good things, ultimately good things should happen to us. If we subscribe to this religion, if we show up for church when we could be watching it on the live stream, if we watch the live stream when we could be at brunch, we should get a kickback for that, right? At least. Jews ask for signs, but this God confronts that in his wisdom. Uh, Greeks want something else. They seek wisdom. They seek an ideal. If you think about the Greek, if you've read much Greek mythology, you know that the, the Greek gods were interesting, right? They were, they were beautiful, and they, they liked to kind of uh, mess with people and mess with nations, if you've read the Iliad. But they don't demand much. Greek religion was something that if you just kind of offered, uh, you know, kind of a little, a, a pinch of incense or a, a little sacrifice, that was enough. Zeus did not make major demands on how you lived your life like the Jewish God did. And so, Greeks are after this kind of ideal that doesn't demand something of them. And again, this, this idea I think is pretty alive and well with us today. This is, this is the spiritual but not religious. This is the, the benevolent force. That there's something maybe that's, that's good and, and powerful in the universe. And I would be happy for it to just stay there. Distant from me. And make no demands on how I should live my life. We believe in God maybe even believe in Jesus, that he's a good teacher or whatever, but makes no demands on us. And so for us this morning, when we hear this, this message of the cross, of course, we have heard this story. It's, it's a, a fundamental part of, of us as Westerners. We know the story of the cross. And yet it's scandalous to us when we really think about it, when it really comes down to it, because we are those who are rich, we're those who are wise, we're those who are strong, It's a scandal to us. Just as it was a scandal to, to those who heard it first. Paul says in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So if we're rich and if we're strong and if we're wise, that confronts us. But now and throughout history, if you are poor, if you're weak, if you're oppressed, this gospel, this wisdom of God, it brings great comfort. Paul reminds them in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But he says later, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The church Paul's writing to is a mixed church. There are some elites we know. The ruler of the synagogue was converted whenever Paul was preaching there. They probably gathered in wealthy people's homes. I actually preached about that on Monday, Thursday. These massive houses where people would come in. But for the most part, we think that Corinth was probably representative of the population. So there were a few elites and maybe a few like middle class artisans or veterans, but the rest of them were probably slaves, servants. And so if you're poor and you hear a message that the God of the universe became poor, that's incredibly compelling. If you're a despised person, if you're a woman in the first century, if you're a slave, if you have no social clout, no social standing whatsoever, and you hear that the God of the universe became despised so that you could be elevated, if you're oppressed, if you're weak, and you hear that the God of the universe became those things, that is good news. 
The God of the universe has shown solidarity with you. And I'm sure that this explains part of the appeal of the gospel to these Corinthians. Paul reminds them of that, that they were not wise and powerful and noble, but that God chose them to display his goodness, to display his kindness. So it brings comfort. And this is, of course, how Christianity turned the world upside down. I've been reading this book by a British historian named Tom Holland. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's called Dominion. I, I do commend it to you. But his argument is basically that if power and victory is won not through might but through suffering, through service, through sacrifice, through death, that the last will truly be first, then that topples the worldly powers. That was the thing that gave martyrs such strength because there was nothing that the Roman imperial guards, there was nothing that lions, there was nothing that gladiators, there was nothing that Caesar could do to take away their power. And that overturned the great empire. So it gave great comfort. But it's not just then that people find comfort. It found great comfort by the slaves. Enslaved Africans here in this country found great hope in the Christian gospel because they were slaves and God made himself a slave to rescue the enslaved people. It's this very message that brings great hope to people all over the world today. I just heard the other day that the fastest growing church in all of the world is in Iran. And my guess is that it's not exclusively the elites that are finding hope in this message. It is the poor. It is the outcast. It is the weak. It is the oppressed. The wisdom of God that we see displayed in the cross brings confrontation to us who are comfortable who are wise, who are strong. But it brings comfort, of course, to those who are low and oppressed. So I have been talking to um, a lot of you, a lot of people, uh, as we come out of COVID, and I am struck by the level of uncertainty that we all experience. Some of you here have expressed this to me. Some of you here that are joining us on video, some of you who uh, are not here, and will never hear me talk about this, have expressed your uncertainty about your whole life, about if you live in the right place, if you should move back to family, if you have the right job, if you have the right spouse. And if this, is, if this faith, if Christianity is worth maintaining, if it's worth continuing in. And so if that's you, like it is me at times, this all sounds so foolish. And I know that. I know that there are doubts. I know that there are questions. I know that some of us are barely hanging on. I know that there are maybe others here who are exploring Christianity or asking questions or coming out of COVID, are grappling with big, important things and, and, are, and are exploring the church and asking if Christianity has those answers. And that's good. We're so glad that you're here, that you're asking those questions. But I just want to say that it was foolish then and it's foolish now to believe that a crucified man is the savior of the world. But if it is true, and I have staked my life on it being so, to those of us who are weak, to those of us who are poor, to those of us who are oppressed, to those of us who have doubts, who question, who have anxiety, who are barely hanging on, the good news is that Jesus became all those things so that we could be rich, so that we could be wise, so we could be strong in him. He did that for you.
And that reality is greater than your doubt. It's greater than your questions. It's greater than your weakness. Paul ends by saying and declaring this good news in verse 30. And because of him, he says, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Seems like foolishness, but it's in fact the wisdom of God. Amen.